Hello everyone, my name is Cliff Duvinois, and after 20 years I've returned to my native Michigan and in my quest to reconnect with our great state, I want to talk to the leaders that are behind Michigan's top destinations. I'm going to learn more about them and the great experiences they and their team provide all of us Michiganders, and perhaps I'll learn a few things along the way. Welcome to the Call of Leadership podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. My name is Cliff Duvinois, and today we are fortunate enough to be able to talk to the executive director of the Detroit Public Library on the podcast today, Joanne. Oh, shoot. I'm sorry, Joanne Mundowney. Joanne, how are you? I'm well, Cliff. Thank you for having me. Great. And thanks for taking the time out today to to speak with us. Why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're from and where you grew up? I am from Baltimore, Maryland. I grew up in the east side of Baltimore, and I have a huge library experience. I became a young adult librarian and worked for the Ena Pratt Free Library for many, many years prior to my coming to uh, Michigan. I was probably an accidental librarian, even though I lived around the corner from a small library and loved, loved reading. However, I had aspirations of being in uh, marketing and accounting, which is where my undergraduate degrees are in accounting and marketing. But I ended up working for the library, never looked back on a, a career in retailing or marketing research and have absolutely no regrets about being um, associated with the public library. That's excellent. You're one of the you're one of the few people there that have hit on their calling on the very first try going out. So, you know, hat tip to you. What is it what is it about working in the library system, you know, for the, for the public library that that really attracts you to it? It is the variety of things that library offer. I sometimes jokingly say, first of all, we have something to offend everybody, but we also have the ability to teach and to show what diverse thinking should be. I'll, we don't judge. We're one of the most democratic institutions in the world because we try to present all points of views and to have others understand and respect all points of views. And that's the one thing I really appreciated about the library and the fact that there, if you are a person that loves to read, love to learn, you can't find a better place than the public library for lifelong learning. And that's true. And I'm so glad you mentioned the lifelong learning because I think uh, as a society, as a culture, we have actually passed the point where you could just study one thing and then just do that for the rest of your life. You you have to be, things are just changing too much. And in order for, you know, for somebody to be, some, for somebody to be stagnant, you, you have to be constantly learning. So that, that's an excellent point that you bring up. What was it that brought you to Michigan? I was recruited to um, come to work. I had worked with a person in Baltimore who had become the executive director of the Flint Public Library and at a point needed an, an assistant and said that I needed a Midwestern experience and, <laughs> and, and didn't know that I needed one. 
came to the surprise of most people because I'd always operated on the East Coast. And so I was recruited to become the assistant director of the Flint Public Library. And then I became the director and then I was recruited to come to Detroit as its executive director. And I had this notoriety of the first outside director to come to the Detroit Public Library in 140 years. Wow. That, uh, yeah, I didn't even think about that, but wow. Well, congratulations to you. Uh, well, thank you. F- for, for doing that. Now, as, as far as like the, the public library goes, I'd like to talk a little bit about the history of that. So you just mentioned the first time in 140 years, right? So that's when the, the public library was founded. No, actually the public library, the Detroit public library, celebrated its 150th year in 2015. It is now 155 years old as a library. And and as you may know, it is the largest public library in the state of Michigan. It has collections that are world-renowned, like the largest automotive history collection in Why Not is Detroit. And it has an outstanding, the Clarence and Burton collection, which includes the automotive history collection, as well as the E. Azalea Hackley collection, which documents the achievements of black performing artists. It also has the Ernie Harwell sports collection and rare books collection, as well as growing digital collection. Not to mention many of some very rare manuscripts like the Laura Ingle Wilder's manuscripts, a letter from a young woman by the name of Grace Bedell who told Abraham Lincoln, if you grow a beard, I think you will win the election. And, she, <laughs> and, and when for the 200th anniversary of Abraham Lincoln's um, birth, the two letters, Abraham Lincoln did respond to Grace and the Library of Congress asked that the original letter from Grace would be on display showing the two letters side by side during the 200th anniversary. So that was a a wonderful thing that that we have that letter. And I think you bring up one of the one of the very appealing points of the, the Detroit Public Library when you talk about and it almost it it almost sounds like a museum, but having these different collections on display for 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 people to come in is this is this something that's always been a part of the Detroit Public Library, or is this having these having these collections come in for people to view? Is it something that's relatively relatively new? No, it's been been a, a real standout aspect of the value of the this library. And in part, it was due to Clarence and Burton, who was, as people say, he was kind of like a pack rat who (laughs) collected things and a bit of a hoarder. But he established the collection with all of his. He was an attorney in Detroit and he collected things like he would read in the paper if somebody passed away, he'd go knocking on their door of the, you know, his survivors and asked for, you know, papers to look at. And and he collected them. And then he decided that he would turn over his collection 
to the Detroit Public Library. Oh, wow. And the thing that he did that was that was very for forward thinking was not only did he just turn it over, he endowed it where it could grow and be taken care of. So we've been doing this for over a hundred years now. Wow, that's that is that's really exciting. I know that when you talk about hey, these collections coming in in public library, and I know that there's a lot of people out there that are now pushing for, or they have been pushing for, you know, like a real digital experience. I would really like to to get your perspective on, you know, in the world of eBooks, in the world of, you know, instant gratification, how do you see the, the, the library, the, 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 you know, the books that you can go and smell? How do you see the library's role in this, in this technology world going forward? Well, well, libraries are libraries across the country are playing a major role, and and here's what has happened, Cliff, with this, with the pandemic, and how things, how people have not been able to enter into places like libraries and touch and feel books. We have been fast forwarded into people learning to survive off of eBooks, and it's it's kind of like. You know, some people say, well, ebooks have we, is it an evolution or revolution? And the way I've looked at it is kind of using Detroit as a model. As you know, Detroit was the heartbeat of the auto industry. Yes. And at the same time, when things were beginning to change and there was so much chaos, so much creativity and confusion with transfer forming from transferring from horses to automobiles and how how that became the basic mode of transportation because we are entering into the digital um, world we're in we're there we know that there is going to be a generation just like there was a generation that never rode a horse to go to and fro there's going to be a generation that's going to have they're going to be very comfortable with the uh, the way their brains are now rewired in their digital natives. And they're going to be happy to do this. But there's always going to be, I don't think the book is going anywhere. I think the Good. physical, those who love touching and feeling and, and, and reading and being able to control with your hands and, and what you're doing, that's going to be with us for a while. I think Gutenberg had it right. When he was able to begin to mass produce, when we were able to mass produce a copy, so so I think it's going to be we're going to get along. I can say that. Excellent, and I know that you mentioned before briefly about you know the COVID nineteen and the popularity of eBooks. One of the things that I came across on your website is the the wonderful virtual events that mm-hmm. you have going on, and a lot of them evolve or involve teaching people like writing, whether it's creative writing or whether it's journalism, talk to us a little bit about the the genesis behind that idea. Is this something that, that you have always done or is it something that you implemented as far as COVID goes? Talk to us about that. Yeah, well, we've had writing programs and, and the thing about it was done in person, but the, one, one of the, well, what we tr- tried to do was look for any silver lining there was to the COVID. And what it did for us is to propel us into doing things virtually. 
which we didn't have to do prior to the pandemic. And we have such creative librarians that were able to transfer some of the in-person programs into the virtual environment. And so the writing and journal programs in poetry writing and so forth, we've done that. It's just that it is now in this virtual environment. Sure thing. And with regards to the, the virtual environment from, from your perspective there, is this something that you're going to see continued? I mean, even if the, the COVID, you know, the COVID pandemic gets behind us, is, does this see something, is this something that you see continuing going forward? Yes, because what, what, what we've learned about the virtual environment, you can get, have more people involved in, in the virtual programming that, for instance, if you were doing a small a project where you were teaching, let's just say teaching somebody knitting or whatever, well, you would have a room where you could accommodate maybe 25 people. In a virtual environment, it could be 200. Yeah, that's really cool. And I like that. And you're not, you're not restricted by geography. Only, only no. thing people need is the internet. Absolutely. And so, and so your, your work, it, it travels farther and more people are able to experience a program or a project that you were unable to do. Well, you were limited in the number of participants. Yeah, that's, that's really great. And as far as like instituting these, these virtual classes online, what was, you know, what was the reaction of, of your staff when you put this together and said, okay, this is, this is what we're going to do. What, what was, what was, what was their reaction? Well, actually it was the staff that said, this is what we can do. Sweet. So it wasn't like we, it wasn't a top down mandate. It came, which makes it even richer. And, and people were willing to say, we can do this. I can do that. So no, it, it was from the, the the staff that said, you know, in order for us to be valued and and vital to the to the community, here's some things we can do virtually. So it brought out many talents and skills that weren't necessarily used because you didn't you did so much in person. That is. That's absolutely excellent, and 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 I love that 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 your that your team was proactive by that, and you know, in and getting that out there. That's really great. Uh, I I wanted to ask you if you know if somebody was coming down to Detroit, they just wanted to come by the public library, and you know, check it out. What would be what would be like your your three recommendations? Like if you come in here, these are three things that that you should see or that you should experience when you come here. I think you should visit the Burton Historical Collection and you should go up to our climb the grand staircase and look at the murals that are there and the work, the workman craftsmanship that went into building this building. It is simply gorgeous. And then take a look at our collection and what we how we've tried to wed history with today. You'll see our technology programs that are going on in our throughout the library in our children's collection. You should those are the top three things you should see. Grand staircase, take walk up there, take a look at our fine arts department, 
the historical collection and then take a look at how vital we are for the public today with our in instituting technology and incorporating, I'm sorry, technology into all that we're doing. Excellent. And, and I know that when I was talking to some friends before we were getting on the podcast and I, and I made a comment about how I, you know, I could not wait to ask you that question. Of course, mm-hmm. their first question to me was, do I have to do I have to have a membership at the public library in order to go in and see those things? No, you know, all public any, any public library around you can go to any public library in America and visit you where it stops is when you want to check out things that okay. that's when you have to have a library card but you could use you can get guest passes to use like computers in the library it's just that you can't check out items that's the only limitation you have but you can visit it's public sure sure and has there been you know between the Detroit Public Library and you know, the, the, the community that is around you, because there is a lot of great uh, institutions, a lot of great businesses that are in the area. Has there been like partnerships in the area where you've, where you've done maybe joint ventures with other people that, you know, maybe surprised you or, you know, the, the, the you know, perhaps the turnout was a lot more than you expected. Has there been anything like that? Yes. Especially with the Detroit Institute of Arts, for instance, yes. when they had several collections, we have been able to benefit by showing what we have. We we partnered with Wayne State when they did the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's birth. We have some Shakespeare and rare items. So no, we and this is what makes the whole cultural center area so rich is that there are always opportunities to collaborate. Yeah, that's that's really good. And I know in, in a couple of the interviews that I've done with uh, the various organizations in Detroit, this is one of the things that they they have always uh, made sure that people understand is the fact that there's a lot of organizations down there that are actively working together to either share common resources or, you know, joint experiences for people. So if there is visitors in Detroit, that it really does create a whole around experience for them. Yeah, and it's not haphazardly done. It's very intentional through the Midtown Corporation, which has really been instrumental in bringing groups, organizations together, not only with, you know, the the revitalization with the Cass Carter and making sure that things like Noel Night and the electricity, having the organizations collaborate in a very, very intentional way that has only um, enhanced the experience of those who come into the area. Excellent. And I have to ask this question because you and I were talking a little bit about this uh, before I hit the record button. And that is that, that, that you and I really do share this, this love for reading. I, I, I'm, I'm all the time got my nose in a book. Actually, it's how I start my first hour of the day is I'm reading. What what are some of your what are your same some of your favorite reads that you've experienced that that either you've gifted that book the most to people, or perhaps you yourself have gone back and reread that book, you you know several times. Well, there are lots of them, but I, I have to, <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, I have always favored as as a young person. I've always loved Russian short stories. <laughs> really? Is, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and books like Anna Karenina. I mean, I always, as a kid, read big books, <laughs> even though I couldn't. I mean, you know, I would have to have a dictionary. But I'm from a family of educators who never ever tried to limit what I. Could read or should read, which I loved. But I, I like Laura Neale Hurston. I always loved short stories, and and some of my writers, that I mean, some of the writers that I enjoyed as a young person, was just because I like what they wrote. I, I love Richard Wright, but I also read H. L. Mencken, and and that was because, as I said, I lived around the corner from a library, sure. which I was not limited to what I could read or should read by my parents. Most of it, you know, if it was, if they thought it was a little above me, I didn't understand it anyway. But I was able to read it. <laughs> so I, I like a variety of writers, honestly, and they run the gamut. But my favorite has has been, you know, Russian novels, and short stories. But I've read people like Toni Morrison, which is a hard read for me. Toni is kind of, you know, you really have to put yourself into it. I like, and I love autobiographies and biographies. So, you know, I run the gamut. And, and I've always, the, the thing that when I was in college, I would tell people, I would read a book and I couldn't help but, you know, want to share it. And, and for some reason, I got into a lot of crime novels, like in Cold Blood, Truman Capote, and yes. those kinds of things. But it was if a book, the thing that I would always know about a book when it would really get to me is if I had to put it down and I keep wondering what the characters were doing. And that's when I knew, you know, oh, my God, is really getting to me. So <laughs> when that would happen, I would like tell people, you got to read this book. You got to read this story and then we can talk about it. So Excellent. And uh, an, another question that I got for you is that because I, I know you said, you know, growing up, you had, you know, a public library around the corner. Mm -hmm. What would be like maybe some some perspective that you have to, you know, for for parents out there that that might be you know thinking, man, I, I wish that my I wish that my kid would read more and would invest more. What would be maybe some some pieces of advice that that you would give the parents? Well, you know, I think I think one of and, and this goes to one of the things I did when I when I came to Detroit and I listened to the, some of the problems that children had in learning to read, and I always felt that it's important to learn to read, but it's critical to love to read. Oh wow! So so that. If a child is struggling, and you know, learning to read is, can be really tricky for, for a young person, but I think that if a parent, you know, first of all, demonstrating that my, my mother, who was an avid reader, would always read with us, to us, and we, and, and we always talk about what we would read, and so it made us, it was just natural for us to want to read and talk about everything that we read with each other. And I think that parents can engage, if they engage in, at a very, a child at a very early age, and if there are problems, if you see that there are problems, there are people who can help analyze what that problem is that could get a kid, you know, to, to learn. Because if you don't 
you have problems learning to read, you won't love it. But once you really learn it and people get excited and about what you've read and you encourage them that a kid will, you know, it'll become a part of them. Man, I love it. I, I love it. I, I, I was going back to the, to the statement that you made earlier that, you know, it, it's, well, let's see, let's see if I can rephrase it, how you said it. Cause it was wonderful. It was, yeah. it was learning, learning, learning to read is good, but loving to read is critical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That belongs on a t-shirt. I love that. Yeah. A couple of people have said that before and they said, you should put it on a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just think that is what it is critical to love it. You got to love it. Yeah, it is. And, and, and you bring up a good point before when you talked about how the, the role of the library is to kind of like to not even really present a viewpoint, but rather have all the material there so people can come in. And if they want to, you know, perhaps even read a book on a different perspective than what they have, they can just go in there and get that book and then, and then, you know, continue to read it. And, and I think getting exposed to all these different ideas just would have a, an extremely positive impact just, you know, on society in general. Because we, you know, I know with like the advent of social media, it's very easy to go down a rabbit hole once you start believing in a certain way. And then that's all the content that you see versus in a library, you guys, you, you, you know, you, you have it all when you're there. So. And, and unless you can, I mean, you know, unless you're exposed to other people's point of view, no matter that you don't necessarily agree with that, that you learn to be less threatened by other points of views if you can see it in a safe environment. Yes. Um, and libraries, they play that role. They played a major role in presenting points of views. Yeah. And that is that is absolutely great for for anybody who who is listening if they wanted to come and check out the library or perhaps you know take a look at the the virtual courses that you're that you offer online what would be the best way for them to do that well right now you know we're limited in the, what we're providing in person but the best way is to stay uh you know check out our website to, which is DetroitPublicLibrary.org, and to keep up with our programs and services we are providing at this time and what we plan to do in the future once we are given the green light to open up our doors in a bigger way. Nice. And uh, for our audience, we will make sure to uh, include uh, all those links in the show notes down below. Joanne, it's been great. I love talking books. So yeah. it's it's been great having you on the podcast today. Well, I've enjoyed being with you, Cliff. I really have. Hey, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, then subscribe to our email newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get new episode announcements. You'll get all kinds of great behind the scenes information on upcoming guests. Plus, you'll receive special offers from our guests and partners that you can only get through the email newsletter. Subscribing is quick, easy, and best of all, it is free. Just go to callofleadership.com slash email, type in your email address, and you're done. Once again, that's callofleadership.com slash email. I'll catch you in the next episode.